This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Command Center. And uh, in the Melton Law Studio, Melton Law has 50 years of experience, the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators. They won't back down, and we're protected, of course, by crime prevention, cpss.net, for all your security needs. Uh, we'll be, uh, in a moment, hopefully, uh, connecting with our guest for today, uh, Phil Kirpin. I think he's on with us now. We'll be doing a telephone conversation with Phil rather than a Zoom, so that'll be interesting. I don't think Phil and I have ever talked by telephone, so you won't be able to see him, although I don't know from time to time production might throw up a generic picture of the handsome man, and um, maybe you can get to take a look at him that way. He is uh, a regular guest on our show, to, and we certainly enjoy talking to him. He is uh, president of the American Commitment, and he keeps us up to date on so many things that the American Commitment think tank, if you will, researches and opines on all very reliable, well-thought-out research. So we like to uh, partner with people like that. Phil, can you hear me, sir? Yes, I can, and uh, I apologize for not having video. I had to do a uh, cap drop-off, so you've got me in the car today. That's why I'm on the phone. <laughs> well, don't go through any tunnels. <laughs> Uh, maybe you just did. I don't yeah, know. No tunnels on my route. We should be all right. Okay. We should be good. all right on that. Good. Well, Phil Kirpin's with us today, and he's en route on another mission, multitasking as the, uh, I hate to say this, the first time I ever heard that term, Phil, was with the liberals. They like to think they could multitask. So uh, consequently, they didn't do any of them very well, I guess. But, <laughs> and how much time do you have with us today, sir? Uh, I think we got half an hour. Good. Okay. We'll take off and tell us about your latest. I've got it right here in front of me, and it's entitled uh, Democrats Want to Raid Medicare to Pay for Obamacare Again. And I got it to start off, and uh, some of that is uh, over my head. So if it's over my head, I'm sure it's over some of our listeners. Well, well Yes, sir. Right, let me explain what's going on. The, uh, the, the president had his Build Back Better uh, spending bill, which I think started out at $6 trillion, and it was everything that Democrats have ever wanted and dreamed of, and it had, you know, the government taking over preschools and nursery schools, and it had paid family leave, and it had, you know, their whole Green New Deal and the whole climate agenda and all their tax hikes, and it had everything the trial lawyers and the unions ever wanted and it was just this giant massive thing and it's been they've been through sort of all these rounds with joe manchin and he just sort of knocks one thing out after another and we're at the point now where there are only two things left in this bill but the dangerous thing is that joe manchin has now agreed to it and so they're they're claiming that they're going to be able to pass it next week we'll see uh, but it's now down to just two things uh, one of them is a expansion or an extension of supersized Obamacare subsidies. Uh, these go directly to insurance companies, and uh, they've uh, been made available up to a pretty high income level now, and they basically uh, mask the cost of, you know, Obamacare, which has no cost containment mechanisms, by dumping the costs onto taxpayers. And so taxpayers, for people who qualify for subsidies, pay for these, you know, always rising insane premiums and uh People who don't qualify for subsidies get the sticker shock of the insane prices and, you know, the premiums never stop are rewarded for increasing them uh, with more and more taxpayer dollars. And so they've got that. Uh, they claim to do it for only two years, but, of course, 
that's just a scam of Washington accounting because they want to do it permanently, but they want the score associated with it to be less than that. So they do it a couple years at a time. So that's the big spending side of this. And the way that they pay for that is they take $287 billion out of Medicare prescription drug spending, and they try to uh, twist this as a positive for seniors. They say, oh, we're going to uh, lower prices uh, by having the government dictate the government set prices for prescription drugs in Medicare. But of course, you know, you can't take $287 billion out of, out of Medicare drug spending without seniors getting less drugs. I mean, there's just a, that should be obvious to anyone with even half a brain. And so what will happen if they pass this is, um, you know, the, the, be- the best, newest breakthrough important drugs and treatments are either not going to be available in Medicare for years after they're developed and people are going to have to pay out of pocket for them because the company's not going to be willing to have the government set the price and lose a fortune, all their R&D and so forth. Or some of these drugs may not even be developed if the prospect of uh, market return isn't there. And so I think seniors will really be hurt if this much money is drained out of Medicare prescription drug spending. And this is a game plan we've seen before from them work when, when Obamacare was originally passed. One of the ways they paid for setting it up in the first place was slashing Medicare benefits. And uh, they actually, I think, paid a political price for that. But, you know, they just feel that the media is in their pocket and they can do this and it'll be covered as this great, wonderful thing that they're saving money rather than raiding money out of Medicare and that they're, um, you know, quote unquote, making healthcare more affordable with subsidies, even though everything we subsidize just gets more expensive, not less. And so, this is sort of the remnants of Build Back Better. I guess some people, the, the the optimistic way to look at it is that it could have been much worse. It, you know, it could have had the Green New Deal and the tax hikes and all the other crazy stuff in it. So some people are kind of saying, oh, that's all they're going to get. Like, that's some great victory. But, you know, I like, I like total victories. So I want to try to stop uh, this last bit of it, too. Uh, and so that's what I'm trying to ring the alarm bells and get people to push back on, uh, you know, ahead of a potential Senate vote on this. Let's have a couple of definitions, if you don't mind, please, Phil. The definition of a senior is, what, 65? Uh, yes, that's correct. That's where So when people gets. turn 65, of course, it's uh, no secret that they become quite often, unfortunately, more dependent upon uh, the so-called prescription drug. And uh, that then um, gets either less available or more expensive if it is available. I think that's what I conclude from what I hear you say. Now, is this just limited to the drug of the uh, coverage? Because we've been studying the, the I don't know what, the, the, ter- the deterioration of physician care through no fault of their own uh, in terms of them being more and more managed by business guys who are not doctors and so uh, you know, a lot of them are bailing. They've reached the age. So is there no over? This is specifically focusing on what the drug would cost you once they prescribed it. Or is it also leak over into their care for you? Well, you know, this particular bill just takes money out of the prescription drug benefit, uh, the prescription drug spending, uh, you know, to hand it to insurance companies with Obamacare subsidies. It doesn't deal with all the other problems that are in Medicare. But you, you raise a really important and interesting point, I think, which is we've got much bigger problems in the Medicare program right now. And if they really think that they can generate, you know, almost $300 billion of, you know, quote unquote, savings uh, by lowering this amount spent on prescription drugs. And as I said, I'm extremely skeptical that you can do that without hurting seniors, that they're going to be able to get the same amount of drugs for, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars less. I'm, I'm very skeptical of that. But if you really believe that that's possible, why wouldn't you keep the money in Medicare to shore up the Medicare program instead of taking it out to spend it on Obamacare subsidies? Well, that's a very good point. I'm concerned also about something which I have to admit I probably haven't studied as, um, certainly haven't studied it as uh, thoroughly as you have. And that's this PR deal, Build Back Better. Can we drift into that for a moment? And since it seems to be a, a child of that, is, is there any way to talk about that as well as we talk about this drug price, sir? Well, you know, I think the, um, I think, the, I think they've, it's, 
but I think it's already dead. I think it's turned into a laugh line with the vast majority of the uh, American public. And you know, I think the the way that phrase was rolled out globally in every country at the same time, with every world leader saying it, I thought was extremely creepy. And most people, I think, found that extremely uh, off-putting. And the fact that the, the Biden version of it, the U.S. version of it, had every crazy left-wing idea they ever thought of and just packed into this one giant bill, the idea that we're going to spend another $6 trillion when we're already dealing with historic inflation, uh, I just showed how completely insane they are. And so I actually suspect that even though this bill is sort of the remnants of that, that they're not going to use that name. I don't think they're going to refer to it as that because I think that name has actually become a negative uh, for Democrats. To what extent has this pandemic uh, run cover for them, if you will? We know, at least I think you would sort of agree with this, that this flooding of the uh, society with money has done a couple of negatives. It's hurt the workforce, uh, and it's also probably caused uh, too many dollars to be flying around out there and helped, uh, therefore, inflation. Is the COVID, the so-called COVID relief bill, uh, it, it's a scam, is it not? Uh, well, I mean, it's a disaster. Look, I mean, they, the, the federal government spent about $6 trillion on so-called COVID relief. About 90% of that was financed by Federal Reserve Treasury purchases with, you know, created money. So about $5.5 trillion of money was created and then sent all over the place to, you know, the testing companies, which are largely scams and checks directly to individuals and people paid specifically not to work. And so what we've done is we've significantly devalued uh, the dollar. Uh, we've reduced the amount of goods and services that are being produced because we paid people not to work. So we artificially boosted demand while artificially suppressing supply. That's a recipe to get record high inflation, which, of course, is what we've seen. And, you know, the supersized Obamacare subsidies that are that they're talking about extending, those were created by the Biden, uh, you know, COVID relief bill. And there's something incredibly corrupt about that because the insurance companies should have been cutting premiums significantly during COVID because healthcare utilization collapsed. It was at record lows throughout the entire pandemic, which... People who haven't looked at the data are, are surprised by because you had all these front page stories about, oh, my God, hospitals are overwhelmed. And that was really never true. Uh, they had a lot of COVID patients during the big waves, but their non-COVID patients basically disappeared, including, by the way, acute patients who normally would have come in for heart attacks and strokes. A lot of them died at home instead because they were so scared of going to the hospital or because they were fooled uh, by media lies to believe that the hospital had no room for them, which is a real tragedy. And so healthcare utilization went down dramatically. In fact, we've not had a single month in this country where hospital utilization reached 2019 levels since the pandemic started. So we've got a substantial underutilization problem in healthcare where people are either scared to go to the doctor in hospital or they don't want to deal with mask requirements or they don't like the restrictions on visitors or whatever the reason is, we've had this big collapse in utilization. Now, you, sh you would think that during a collapse in utilization, you would have premiums go down a lot because claims went down a lot. And so, you know, you would expect that the health insurance companies, okay, we don't have a lot of claims. We're not paying out much because people aren't using health care. We're going to slash our premiums a lot. And that hasn't really happened. They've been, you know, like at best flat. A lot of people actually had increases even during the pandemic. And, you know, I think that just shows that when government takes something over and massively subsidizes it, you're just never going to get price to go down because they know no matter how high they raise the price, you know, for a lot of their customers, taxpayers are picking up any increase. And, uh, you know, they, they and for the customers who, you know, don't qualify for subsidies, they don't really have anywhere else to go. And the money just keeps flowing in. And so I think what we've seen over the last couple of years shows how outrageously broken Obamacare is and how we really should be moving in a totally different direction that actually has a functioning market that responds to market incentives rather than uh, just massive, endless subsidies flowing in. And yet, you know, the lesson that Democrats have learned is, you know, throw even more money at insurance companies as if that's going to somehow solve the problem. And so, uh, I, you know, I think that our healthcare system 
had a lot of problems before COVID. I think that uh, it's probably even worse now. And frankly, I think the appetite among the public, and I hope Republicans are sort of paying attention or ready to do this, and I think the public now hates every single major player in healthcare. I think they hate big pharma. I think they hate the big hospitals. I think they hate the big government programs. And I think they hate the, uh, what did I live? The insurance companies. I think they hate them all. And so, you know, I think that if Republicans are smart, they'd say, we're going to have a health insurance plan that we're going to have a health reform plan that blows all of that up, that puts, you know, the money that government is spending on healthcare and the money that you're putting into healthcare into a, a unlimited health savings account where you control the money. And uh, we're going to deregulate and reverse all the incentives that cause these massive hospital consolidations so you can find independent physicians again and you can, you know, spend that money in a way that works for you. And I just think they need to think bigger than anything they're thinking about because, frankly, I, I don't know anyone who's happy with any aspect, any of these big players in healthcare. I don't know anyone who's happy with any of them right now. You know, Phil, I was listening carefully to what you were listing there, and I would add one more, and I'm sure you would agree. And that's the physicians are also tired of it. Um, the physicians of my peer age are, are retiring, uh, getting out of it. Um, um, they they feel as if there's so much paperwork that's required that they don't have time yeah. to actually see the patient, Phil. Well, doctors used to be extremely entrepreneurial. Doctors used to be business people as well because they ran their own practice and uh, they, you know, would try different things and use their clinical knowledge and figure out what an individual patient would benefit from. And now the vast majority of physicians have been consolidated into uh, hospital systems and networks, and they're told what to do, and they're micromanaged and observed. Even if they're still independent, they've got to deal with massive government and insurance company bureaucracies unless, you know, unless they're Unless they've, unless they've struck out on their own and they're doing direct primary care or concierge or whatever. and But if they're doing that, then people have got to pay for them on top of paying, you know, all the taxes and the mandates and everything else. So people have got to double pay for that, which, you know, most people can't afford to do. And so we've really, I think, made a mess of the physician-patient relationship. And we've made the profession of being a doctor very different than what it historically was. And, you know, when you do that, the great doctors that have been doing it for decades, you know, they're going to retire sooner rather than later to avoid dealing with the headaches and the bureaucracies, private and government bureaucracies. And that next generation, instead of being, you know, the best, smartest, you know, you get some of the best and smartest that just are super interested in medicine. They're still going to become doctors. But a lot of the best and brightest would rather go into finance or go into whatever, something else, I, I, information technology, whatever it is, because. You can be more creative, you can be more entrepreneurial, and you don't have to deal with massive bureaucracies. And so I think we're getting, unfortunately, a different type of person that seeks the profession. And by the way, I think we're not, I'm not sure we're getting enough people either, but the ones we're getting are a different type. And it's sort of, you know, they're, they're a salary man and an organization man, and they, they do what they're supposed to do. And I think the quality of medical care has significantly suffered for that. I think it's not nearly as good as it was. And I think a lot of the best doctors. Uh, are retiring sooner rather than later rather than deal with all the headaches of, you know, dealing with whether it's Medicare and Medicaid from the government or the, you know, with United Health and Blue Cross. I mean, none, nobody wants to deal with any of these bureaucracies. You know, Phil, we're speaking with Phil Kirpin, President of American Commitment, who, as you know, American Commitment is a wealth of research knowledge. And every once in a while, we get a great opportunity to talk with Phil. So I'm looking at the chat line in case you have any questions or comments. Um, Phil, for example, what you just said about uh, uh, these management services, I just uh, saw my cardiologist, whom I've been with for, I don't know, 20, 25 years. He's going to, re you know, he's going to retire. Of course, that's code for I've had enough. And um, then, lo and behold, unsolicited, I get a questionnaire about my visit. And um, I just don't want to fill it out because I feel like they're going to, I don't want to rat my doctor out, you know. How much time did he spend with me? Well, he spent a lot of time with me. I'm sure from the management point of view, he spent too much time with me. He could have seen two more people in the time he spent with me. Uh, some, it, it, you know, it affects some of us right, right closely and right intimately on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, uh, you know, to what extent is, I'm looking at your article with AARP, you know, here's my deal, uh, Medicare and AARP. And, but ARP keeps tinkering with his plans, too. They've tried to get me tri through trickery, I think, 
to change the plan, and I've researched it to a less efficient plan. You know what I'm saying, Phil? AARP makes about $750 million a year from United Health. That's a staggering number. I mean, it's an almost incomprehensibly large number. And so, you know, I think that they will do what United Health wants them to do, essentially. I mean, I don't think they really represent seniors. When you get three times as much money from a corporate relationship as you do from your membership dues, which is what they do, uh, you know, which one are you going to serve? You can't have two masters. And I think that what's happened with them is they've really become a huge, huge business, uh, trading on their name, essentially. Uh, and it's kind of marketing to the seniors they used to represent. And I think it's been very harmful, both, you know, for the quality of health care for people in those plans, but also for the policy debates in this country. Because what happens is, you know, they run ads and they do lobbying and all this for whatever's good for the health insurance industry. And they sort of become an, an, an arm of that because, you know, that's where they make their money. And I, I have, you know, how can you, you know, they have some other corporate relationships also. So overall, their corporate royalties are about a billion dollars a year. 750 million of it comes from United Health. I mean, how, how can you be a nonprofit organization and have, you know, royalty revenue of a billion dollars a year? I, I, I just find it astonishing. And, you know, I, I, I don't know how they've kept their reputation and their good name the way they have when they function essentially as, you know, kind of a sales arm of the largest health insurance company. And I actually think that's been you know, one of the most corrosive aspects of all these healthcare debates we have going back to the original Obamacare, which they endorsed basically because it was good for United Health, even though I think their members were 14 to one against it. Um, so AARP is a huge problem and they, you know, they're out there with ads and cheerleading and they support this, this, Democrat bill that we were talking about, which, you know, reduces Medicare prescription drug spending by you know, almost $300 billion and doesn't keep the money in Medicare, but uh, instead spends it on Obamacare subsidies to the giant insurance companies. You know, one of the giant insurance, giant insurance companies is United Health. So how is that not a massive conflict of interest? You know, how, do they, how do they get away with that without the press saying, hey, wait a second, aren't you advancing the corporate interests of your biggest part? But they never say it. They never pointed out because all of that's aligned with the Democrats' policy priorities, which makes it the media's policy priorities. So they're all on the same team. Well, you know, I don't. I've got a question here coming in. You know, to what what choice does a senior have? It seems as if AARP, for either good PR and publicity or whatever, appears to be the only choice in town to supplement Medicare. Is there something that we don't know? It's a well kept secret that's available. Uh, well, you know, there are a lot of, there, there are a lot of different plans, uh, both, you know, Part C, Medicare Advantage. If you go with traditional Medicare, AARP totally dominates the supplemental insurance Medigap market. That's true. But, you know, for a lot of people, they're actually better off in a Medicare Advantage plan, of which there are a lot of choices from different providers. So, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not the healthcare broker or advisor for you or your listeners, I don't necessarily have the right answer. For a lot of people, the AARP plan is going to be the best plan, even with the 5% they're skimming off the top, because they have such an economy of scale with the number of people in it. They get pretty good prices. Uh, I just think, you know, if it's, the, if, if it's the best you can get, okay, do it, but you know, do it with your eyes open and understand the advocacies they're doing and everything else. And, and I, don't, I don't have uh, a single answer, but I do think that if people, you know, first of all, if you go through ARP to shop plans, they're only going to show you United because they have an exclusive deal. So you got to look beyond that to other places and, you know, do, do your online searches and so forth. You know, talk to your, talk to your, um, doctors also ask, you know, what plans they recommend or what plans they've seen and take and that kind of thing. But I don't have a single answer on that. Unfortunately, I wish I did. We have a question coming in about the so-called donut. Uh, does this, kind of shell game we got going on here, if you want to call it that. Does it do anything to the donut? Because the donut is where really, uh, for seniors, things can jump off the, off the table. Um, you know, I need, we need to see what the final language looks like to answer that. I think they, they do have an out-of-pocket cap in this bill. And so, uh, you know, 
if you hit the out-of-pocket cap in the bill, uh, then I think you have coverage even inside the donut hole. But the, the bigger issue is going to be uh, that the best new, most important drugs and a new blockbuster drug comes out, it's not going to be covered. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think that you are going to have a cap for the, for the drugs that are covered. You're going to have a cap of how much you can spend. But my concern is that the way they're changing, the way the benefit works, there are going to be some drugs people are going to need that aren't covered at all. And so that's not going to be subject to the cap. So the, the, the answer is yes, but with an asterisk. We're going to have to see how this develops, but I'm concerned that when you take that much money out, um, it's, going to have, it's going to cause problems. Well, you make an interesting point here, too, that um, um, the development of the drugs, much you're saying, at least is what I am getting out of this, so maybe I'm wrong, is faster than the development of the coverage for the drugs. For whatever reason. And that's where the rub is, I believe. That's what I'm hearing. That's where the politics comes in. Well, that's the difference. That's that's the difference between the US and most other countries. Okay, you know, in the US, the Medicare pays the average sales price uh, of the drug. They've got a formula for it. And so when a new drug comes out, it, it's in Medicare basically right away because it's the in the interest of the insurance company to make it available and they can get a good price for it. And uh, you know, well, the, the cost that we pay for that, though, is we've got much higher prices in other countries where they don't do it that way, where they have the government kind of set the price or they have some kind of negotiation. Because what happens in those other countries is the drug company says, if you're not willing to pay enough to justify, you know, our R&D costs and everything else, we're not going to sell you the drug. And so the drug's not available. And then maybe, you know, three, four, five years later, they say, okay, we've made back our R&D money. It's a little bit of extra profit. Now we'll take your price. Now, we're going to move under this bill in the direction of what other countries do, where the government sets the price instead of it being a market-based price. Now, when you do that, if you've got a new blockbuster drug, let's say somebody cures Alzheimer's tomorrow, um, although they probably won't because all the Alzheimer's research has been misdirected because of fraudulent uh, paper 16 years ago. Everyone's been going down a rabbit hole in the wrong direction. I don't know if you saw that story that came out a couple of days ago, but, uh, you know, just Imagine there's a new blockbuster drug and it, it cures Alzheimer's. Now it, it costs, let's say it costs $50 billion to develop some obscene amount of, some insane amount of money. Now, if you're the company that owns the patent on that drug and Medicare, the government is saying, you know, we'll pay for it, but we're only going to pay a hundred bucks or something. You, for the economics to work, for you to make back everything that you spent on that, you can't sell to Medicare if that's the price that the government's going to set. So what you're going to do is you're going to say, all right, our drug is not in Medicare. You have to buy it out of pocket. It's not available in Medicare. We're going to set the price, you know, whatever, $2,000, whatever it is. But now people can't use their benefit at all to get it because it's not offered in Medicare. Uh, and so, you know, there's a, there's a point at which by government saying we're going to set the prices instead of it being a market price, you don't get the drug at all or you don't get it for years until they're willing to take the lower price the government is offering. And so the downside of government price setting is, you know, the upside is maybe you get it cheaper because government sets the price instead of a market price. The downside is if government sets the price too low, maybe you don't get it at all, or maybe you don't get it unless you have to pay out of pocket because it's not covered. Well, this lead to what I think has happened, maybe still happening, that you'd be going able to go across the border and get the drug cheaper. Well, maybe, um, but, you know, the reason that the drug companies have been able to sell cheaper in you know, lower-income countries or even into the rich countries that have these government price-setting schemes is they know that they can make their money back in the U.S. market where there's market pricing. And so if the U.S. Uh, no longer plays that role, um, some drugs just don't get developed at all because there's no place you can earn your money back on it if it's going to be expensive to develop. And the ones that do get developed... Uh, you know, they've got to, you know, they're going to have to be very careful with the quantities that they sell and everything else if they're going to come back and undermine their pricing other places. So I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. You know, one of the challenges we've had for a long time in drug pricing is that the rest of the world does get a free ride on us. You know, they pay much less than we do for all these drugs, and we kind of cover the R&D costs, and uh, the rest of the world kind of pays, you know, a little bit over the marginal cost, and it's extremely unfair we, we really need to figure out, and I think that Trump was really working on how to do this, we really need to figure out how to let our prices fall and their prices rise and meet in the middle 
so that uh, you still have a strong incentive for developing new drugs and a good return on capital, but it's not coming disproportionately from the U.S. It's spread, you know, globally, or at least among the other rich countries. And I think that, you know, to accomplish that, you really need to do it in the trade negotiation context. You need to make it one of your absolute top demands when we're negotiating trade deals that other countries, you know, pay uh, an equal price for prescription drugs to what we pay. But uh, it's been very politicized. You know, we've got a problem. Democrats do not want other countries to pay more for drugs, even though if other countries paid more, we would pay less. And Trump actually got um, Canada and Mexico to agree to pay more for biotech drugs in USMCA. That was one of the things he negotiated. They would pay more, which would allow us to pay less. And uh, Pelosi took it out. That was one of her, like, must-have changes. She actually took that out of the agreement because she said, you know, we don't want other countries paying more for drugs. And so um, it's been a very challenging problem for many years that other countries get a free ride on us. It's not an easy one to solve, but I'll tell you, it's, it's made a lot harder by the fact that Democrats don't even seem to be on board with the goal of getting other countries to pay more for drugs. It's got an interesting comment coming in from somebody who's pretty good with money who claims that there are really no available federal funds for any of these so-called benefit programs. Um, this is uh, uh, fiat money that's uh, causing the health costs as well as the others to rise. Uh, any comment about that before we head out here? Well, I mean, it's, that's been true. You know, for the last few years, uh, you know, something like 90% of the federal uh, borrowing has not been real borrowing. It's been Federal Reserve purchases of treasuries, which is to say it's been printed money or, you know, they electronically created out of thin air. They don't actually print the currency much anymore. They just hit a button on a computer and uh, conjure it up. And, uh, you know, that's part. Look, I mean, we get into a whole other thing, but they're going to pass a giant uh semiconductor subsidy bill probably today with some republican votes by the way that you know they're going to spend another 200 billion dollars and this is for some reason this is the one thing everyone in washington agrees on is that they can just keep spending money like crazy money that we don't have and you know we always talk about it being borrowed uh but it's more accurate these days to say that it's printed or created out of thin air by the federal reserve because there aren't real uh, lenders for the federal government to borrow from. 90% of the, what they quote-unquote borrow, they borrow from the Federal Reserve, which conjures it out of thin air. And that's why we have the inflation problem we have right now. So that, that call is absolutely correct. Well, you know, at some point, maybe the chickens will come home to roost, as they say. Uh, I've been talking with some people who, along the same line, a dollar is really worth, what, 68 cents or something like that. I don't know if American Commitment has looked into that. And it's not so much that we're paying more for the products we're getting so-called inflation, see your opine on this, but we're paying with dollars that are worth less. And so therefore, might we reach the place where Germany did or Venezuela did or these places where all of a sudden, uh, say you have a million dollars, uh, just take an O off and now you have a hundred thousand. This is a frightening scenario. You know, I actually think that uh, inflation is going to get worse for the next couple of months, at least in the uh, published data, because they're lower inflation months that are rolling off the 12 months. So I do think we're going to see them print 10 percent sometime in the next three months, uh, probably. But then I think unless they pass another giant spending bill, inflation should come down because, you know, these were sort of one time events, these massive money printing. And so it's not unless they continue to do it. you know, it's a it's a it's a one time sort of devaluation, but then after that, uh, things should should moderate somewhat. The problem is you've got you know you've got bad energy policies, you've got a lot of other factors that are driving up prices. So I think the I think it's not going to stay at ten percent. I think it's going to settle in in the four to six percent range, but that's pretty damaging in itself. And so you know we've really got to fix a whole number of po- policies. Uh, to stop it. I do not think we're headed for a hyperinflation uh, Zimbabwe type scenario, though, because they're not, you know, for that to happen, they'd have to be, you know, spending, you know, trillions, you know, every week instead of doing it a couple of times with these giant bills. So I don't think we're headed in that direction. But, you know, with where we are right now, the, the dollar loses half of its purchasing power in, I think, seven years or six years or something like that. And so it's very corrosive. And although, by the way, most of the rest of the world is actually doing as 
badly or even worse. And in fact, the dollar is getting stronger against other currencies right now, which is kind of remarkable. So, you know, a lot of this stuff is complicated, but the one thing that's obvious to everyone is, um, yeah, the prices that you face every single day are going up dramatically and family budgets are being squeezed. And that's obviously the top issue for voters this year. And I, I think that, um, you know, if Republicans win the House and Senate, they need to have a very serious agenda to deal with that and deliver something for people so they feel like their vote, you know, was worthwhile. And, you know, we're, we're sort of in a whole different area than where we started, Ward, but, uh, it, you know, it's, uh, it's, that's definitely the top issue for the country right now, uh, more so than the healthcare stuff even. Well, I think it's sort of, uh, I didn't mean to segue off, uh, get out of the lane, but I think it's all, uh, if you will, come from the same checkbook. And, uh, you know, it's some kind of a, a shell game. You think you have it, but you don't really have it. So you, you kind of kind of check, you know, you borrow some money, so to speak, uh, from one pot to, to keep uh, this program afloat. And then you got to run over to the other side and borrow some money from another pot to keep that thing going. You just keep going around the horn, you know, and it's, um, it's no physical austerity there. There's no uh, discipline, if you will, which is really what concerns me. Finally, what is going to be the leader. Where's the leadership coming from? You know, this January 6th thing, there's so many things that Trump did that made sense as he made as a businessman that never get the light of day in the press. The whole thing is the the, uh, the January 6th thing is just to make sure that he doesn't come back and challenge the administrative state. But that's a whole nother program for another day. Man, we could really talk about that. So um, I don't know what your time things are. We're about uh, we've been talking for 35 minutes, and it's like 35 seconds to me whenever I talk with you, Phil. So, yeah, I, uh, I'm actually I made it home, and I'm sitting in my driveway, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to do the show another time, specifically about that whole issue of uh, you know the the Biden personnel basically has zero business experience; they have no clue what they're doing, and I think that Trump learned that the biggest shortcoming of his first term was that he never really got a handle on the federal personnel issue. And I think that if he does get a second term, that's going to be his top thing is, you know, firing the 50,000 most destructive bureaucrats in the federal government. And uh, I, I think they're building a list. And I think that the uh, sort of the, the Trump administration in exile, if you will, uh, they, they understand that that's got to be a total top priority. Yeah, that's the so-called Schedule F, as I understand it where he caught on to what yeah. they were doing. And you couldn't fire the guys who were actually causing the damage. So he was set out to do that. And that really rattled the cages, if you will, of the administration. Also synonymous, I suppose, with the deep state. Well, don't let you run your home. And it's always great to talk to you. I want to line that conversation up with us uh, sometime in the future if we can. Um, uh, we're going to be, um, I think, you, are you still there, sir? Yep. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be co-hosting each Wednesday, I'm invited on to the show to co-host with me. He's actually very eager about doing it in case you want to keep this schedule in mind. Uh, Ted Yoho, uh, every Wednesday, he will be my co-host. He has that eight years of experience in Congress. And uh, we're going to be seeking a conversation about these type of topics, too, if you want to keep that in mind. So um, uh, we'll, we'll talk again. All right. Thank you very much. Been talking with uh, a really good, good, good friend. Thank you, sir. Good friend of the show, Phil Kirpin, who's president of the American Commitment, which is a very, very uh, significant American think tank on issues. You can take it to the bank when they say something. They really research it. And they have a lot of political influence in D.C. And uh, we're thankful that uh, Phil's there and that whole organization is there. I think we're going to take a break now. I'll be a little bit late uh, for our sponsors. And uh, we'll be back in just a moment on the Ward Scott Files. On August 11th, our restaurant Spurrier's Gridiron Grill will be celebrating our one-year anniversary, and we're inviting you to Celebration Point. Proceeds from the event will go to the Ronald McDonald House, and we'll have a spread of your favorite Spurrier dishes, as well as special guests, but you have to get a reservation. So go to Spurrier's.com right now and reserve your spot before it sells out. And thank you for a super first year. Go Gators! 
Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Maurice T. McDaniel, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Oh, the warthog. He's gonna come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. All right, welcome back to the uh, Warthog here, Warthog Command Center with the Wart Scott Files inside the Melbourne Law Studio. Um, thank you, Lewis Oil, for sponsoring the weather. Right now, I can tell you where we're broadcasting from here in the piney woods of north central Florida, which is God's country. It is hot. Uh, it's about 93 degrees right now, uh, but it feels like it's 104 degrees. Uh, it's very, very dangerous to be outside for long periods of time. We don't have much wind gusts. We do have about a 50 percent possibility of rain. Uh, that rain comes in patchy kinds of uh, distributions. Um, but nevertheless, it is a welcome relief. It's uh, also, of course, uh, we have uh, another month of this probably, although August tends to taper off a little bit, not a whole lot. But one of the interesting things that I like to do with this weather moment is to uh, broaden out the conversation about weather a little bit. And, uh, you know, I've look, I found this article by Matthew Capocci, who is a, an, a, a licensed uh, a weatherman meteorologist and has written an article about, you know, why this is not necessarily the hottest time ever. Uh, and he went back and found uh, that really the hottest time in the, some of these Midwestern states like Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota uh, was uh, uh, in the uh, days of the Dust Bowl. And uh, the Dust Bowl was not caused by climate change. Imagine that. The Dust Bowl was not caused by climate change. Um, my picture's frozen there on, uh, on the hog. Are we okay on the air? Are we on the air? We're going? Okay. Do I need to start over? Okay. I'm just looking at my screen here, and I'm stuck with a little picture of the pig. So, uh, uh, I can't really tell what's going on uh, necessarily with uh, your live video unless production gives me a clue or you give me a clue. But I'm still, 
Okay, good. Ducks is watching from, yeah, you guys are telling me it's okay. All right, thank you very much. I have to make sure, you know, we have three of the computers and uh, production uh, people are look, looking at their set. I'm looking at my set. And of course, you're looking at your set. So, but as I was saying, um, the uh, hottest temperatures really were not caused by climate change. They were caused by uh, heat domes related to dust bowls. And for example, in Oklahoma in 1936, uh, the temperature hit 120 degrees. In Kansas, in 1936, it hit 121 degrees, Nebraska, 118 degrees, South Dakota uh, made it to two, uh, 120 degrees in 2006, um, and North Dakota, 121 degrees in uh, 1936. Now, this was really brought about by the Dust Bowl in those, in those 30s, in the years marked 30s. And what caused the Dust Bowl was that... Um, the clearing of green uh, for uh, 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 for uh, agricultural needs. You know, there is something about trees. I mean, trees do provide shade. They provide uh, they 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 uh, help eliminate uh, rapid runoff of water. But we had cleared in the mid uh, western states uh, uh, in the 30s, um, basically the decade of 1930 to 39. You know, that is obviously uh, uh, a time when uh, Grapes of Wrath and, 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 and books like that were written, um, which were very, very John Steinbeck, very interesting things to read. Um, but that, that was modern farming and irrigation techniques uh, now have changed that so that we don't have or limited at least the odds of another dust bowl. So um, there are lots of causes for uh, human induced if you will, climate change that doesn't have anything to do with cars or the burning of fossil fuel. Uh, one of the big things that has something to do with climate change is the clearing of the forests. So um, I, I don't like to clear the forest. I've got uh, to keep as many trees and here as I can uh, at the same time, take care of them and make sure that they don't offer some sort of hazard to, to what we're doing, but um, uh, it's all part of the whole dealing with nature. Now, one of the stories that's going on is uh, is um, kind of interesting to me is a story that you may have picked up on, you may not have picked up on. Uh, it is the Pope coming back to Canada to apologize for the way in which the Catholic Church treated the indigenous uh, population. And it made me think of something which, of course, we studied all this in my research class when I was in the classroom a long, long time ago, because one of my research themes was the effects of industrialization on human society. And boy, that was a fertile uh, ground to research. Uh, it is far reaching, it's complicated. How did people get in? enraptured with industrialization. We fought a war over that. It's called the Civil War, and you're propagandized into believing it was about slavery, but it was actually about how we would relate to nature, whether we would industrialize or whether we'd be agrarian. And uh, you could take your pick on which used human labor the most uh, with the greatest disregard. Uh, the South uh, was criticized for having so-called slaves, but those people were then once free, quote unquote, they went to the north where they became uh, wards of the state in big ghettos and worked if they could work in very menial uh, corporate jobs, janitorial jobs and things of that nature without any ability at all to rise in the corporate structure. And the South always argued this would happen, that ironically, the South would be more humane than the North. Slavery was monstrous in theory, but more humane in practice. Um, you go to the North and you have economic segregation. You have neighborhoods that are off limits because uh, only the poor tend to associate or be able to live there, subsidized by government housing. 
And those structures create all kinds of crime. And you see what you got in Chicago, Baltimore, which is really a southern city in many ways, right on the border, if you will, north influence and southern influence. So in Canada, uh, the Catholic Church was very influential in uh, its uh, trek across Canada to convert indigenous people to the Catholic belief. And it was a great movie, still is a great movie, that you might want to look at on Netflix sometime uh, called The Black Robe. Now, when I saw it, it had subtitles. It is historically accurate. It is uh, released in September 5, 1991. Its director was Bruce Beresford. It had the Jenny Award for the best picture. Uh, and it has uh, about a Jesuit priest uh, going across Canada uh, looking for a Canadian mission and uh, uh, that the Catholics have established. And of course, he finds it having been uh, assaulted or, if you will, uh, attempted to be rejected by the uh, native indigenous people. And there's some moments in the movie that I recall, I haven't seen it in years, where um, the black robe, the reason the title is a black robe, is uh, the Jesuit priests wore a black robe. And there are several scenes, as I recall, where the Indian shaman, who is the spiritual leader of the pagan society, which is an indigenous society. Remember, pagans place their deities in nature and there's multi-deity. Uh, radical monotheism, which is Western religion, uh, eliminated all the competing gods and goddesses, which would have been in a Rome mythology and in Greek, or it's called a Greco-Roman mythology, and also in indigenous hunters and gatherers who knew they didn't take too much from nature or there wouldn't be anything left for them to take from nature. So they never slaughtered uh, all the buffalo they could on, uh, on the plains of the Midwest on flatbed B&O car as Custer did in one day and left the carcasses there to rot. That really horrified the indigenous people. But when the Jesuit priest is coming across Canada looking for this mission, there are several conversations between the shaman and the Catholic. And they never, ever, ever, ever can agree on anything. And the reason they don't agree on anything fundamentally is because the way Western religion allowed their leaders, religious leaders, to treat nature. Um, they, the, the, the shamans didn't understand that. You don't exploit, the, you don't poison the land that gives you your, sustains you. But you see, the problem with uh, hunting and gathering societies is they cannot support that many people by definition. The wigwam was portable. Um, the life was nomadic in many, many ways. Whereas the um, formal religion structure of Europe could produce cities. It could diversify and separate the cities from the rule and make agriculture. And that agriculture could supply the food for the people, the mercantile class in cities. Um, there are many, many works about this, principle of which, of course, probably would be Charles Dickens with The Tale of Two Cities or Oliver Twist or any of his work. So it's a really um, a very fascinating uh, look at the society. Now this Catholic priest from Argentina, whom we're going to have a conversation tomorrow with uh, Father Francis Rooney and uh, my co-host guest on Wednesdays, uh, Ted Yoho, about the effects of uh, this Catholic priest who's from Argentina, who is from a socialist country, on uh, the uh, um, resolve of Putin and Ukraine. Uh, I think you'll be very interested in that conversation tomorrow because it's a complicated subject, but there's a long past to it. So this Catholic priest now, all even the Catholics will tell you, is not Pope John, who seems to be the favorite Catholic priest. Uh, this Catholic priest is from a socialist country and has really carried that socialism uh, into the Catholic Church and has caused a lot of stress and strain in there, as I understand it. Um, so now he has gone back, if you will, to try to apologize, I apologize, I apologize for uh, the behavior 
of, of the Jesuit priests. Um, and it's, um, it's questionable whether that really means much because uh, it's, you know, here's the way I feel about apologies. Apologies remind me of alcoholic fathers. If you ever had an alcoholic father, you know that what they're given to are sudden fits of outrageous behavior, anger, uh, violent outbursts. Uh, it's, the, it's the alcohol that gets them, and they have a lot of trouble with pressure, or they wouldn't be on the alcohol to start with. And then what my experience has been with alcoholic fathers, having had one, is that they come back the next day filled with remorse, apologize, I apologize, I didn't mean to do it, I don't know what got over me. I, I like to think this is not really me. BS, it is really you. And that's the thing that is so belated and strange about a Catholic priest coming back in 2022 to apologize for something that they don't really mean to take back. I mean, they really don't want to allow, you know, Algonquin or, uh, uh, these native uh, uh, Indian tribes of, of, of Canada uh, to to flourish again because it would be a threat to Catholicism. So the apology really is the way I came to view apologies from any other person, particularly alcoholic people who all of a sudden had a burst of remorse. No, no, that doesn't fly. Um, and that's not, that you know, Albeit, it's it's still you you can't take back the occasion, and so be it what it is. I mean, if this priest wants to go back to Canada and apologize, if it makes him feel better, so be it. But it doesn't make the indigenous people feel any better, and it doesn't really uh, resolve the fundamental difference between the two religious systems about how they view nature. Uh, the flaw. It's in, 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 in Catholicism, and I'll give you the moment, it is, by, it is in a novel, At the Moon's End, written by Andrew Lytle, who studied this intensely. Uh, there's a moment here in Florida where DeSoto comes up. He comes up through Florida in the Bay of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he has a rest right out here, not too far from where we are now. And, and uh, his problem, he came with 30 men on horseback, and uh, he came with swine to push ahead, to push through the palmettos and the heavy foliage. And he uh, sewed the, shot, uh, the lead swine's eyes shut so that they could get through this heavy, and they would trample it down. And then the horses came. And then, of course, it was always a matter of, of existence after that. Man, they must have been fantastic guys, tough as nail. But there is a place where they are famished for water. They come to water, and uh, they... DeSoto orders his men to drink it. And the priest says, and they were always accompanied by a priest, says, wait, I haven't blessed it. And DeSoto says to the men, drink it anyway. We'll bless it later. Something like that, exactly. And that's called the hole in Christianity. That is the moment where the avarice and the greed and the materialism of the colonial powers witnessed this time by DeSoto who was in a race really with Coronado to try to find gold in the Northern Hemisphere. They had found it all over the Southern Hemisphere and it stricted all the wealth out of those places and, uh, uh, and it left nothing there. Um, they uh, uh, really uh, were that moment placing their priorities in a place that really has become historically a uh, precedent for much of what we have today the uh, so-called spiritual hollowness, hollowness of, 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 of Western religion. And it's called a hole in Christianity. And I asked some of my really good friends who are very, very well uh, study, studied and practicing uh, theologians uh, and about that. I said, what about this dominion over nature? Uh, that you have dominion over nature. They say, these guys who are the scholars say, that was misinterpreted. It meant you are responsible for nature. You do not dominate nature. This becomes the essential argument between the Catholics and the indigenous Native Americans in this particular situation 
in Canada. Of course, it's replicated here. So for this pope to go back, it's okay, da 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 but it doesn't mean anything because the damage is done and the belief system hasn't changed. There you are. That is from Professor Ward Scott. You've got a little bit of my uh, uh, research class uh, benefits of that research. I'm doing that strictly off the top of my head. So uh, no notes or anything of that nature. I apologize if I miscalculated a page, uh, but I can show you uh, this work in uh, Fran uh, uh, Francisco de la Torre's diary, uh, which is the diary the monks kept as they accompanied the Spanish conquistadors. Uh, fantastic work that you may want to take a look at sometime, published in the Swanee Review. Tomorrow, I'll be co-hosting with uh, Ted Yoho, and we'll be doing that as we plan right now every Wednesday. So you don't want to miss that. That's going to be a fun, uh, exciting uh, uh, show, and we'll be taking on topics, and we'll be talking with the Ambassador uh, Rooney uh, to the Vatican. So we'll bring these subjects up with you. Have a great day. Thanks, production, for taking care of us today, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Warthog Command Center out.